Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ukraine taking credit today for blowing up a vital supply line bridge for the Russians. The lead starts right now. Bridge attack for the second time this war. Strikes have hit the bridge linking Russia to its annexed peninsula of Crimea. As Ukraine claims responsibility, Putin calls it a terrorist attack and vows to respond. Plus a big week in the 2024 presidential race. The event drawing GOP contenders today, though Asa Hutchinson is going his own route. I'll speak with the former Arkansas governor about his strategy to try to get some traction and... Spell check needed, the simple mistake in millions of emails that is putting sensitive Pentagon information potentially into the wrong hands. Welcome to the Lead Object Tapper, and we start with our world lead Russian leader, Vladimir Putin, is vowing retaliation today after Ukrainian forces unleashed a pre-dawn strike on the bridge that connects Crimea to Russia. Sources tell CNN two Russians were killed in the attack. It is the second such one. On the strategic and symbolic 12-mile crossing since the start of the war, Putin was quick to label today's strike as a, quote, terrorist attack. This comes the same day that Russia has ended a deal critical to the world's food supply. The Black Sea Grain Initiative officially expires in less than an hour. This will likely stop the flow of supplies from what is commonly referred to as Europe's breadbasket. It is a decision that could tip millions throughout the world into hunger. CNN's Alex Marquardt is in the southern Ukrainian port city of Odessa for us, as Russia insists it will overcome Ukraine's latest bridge strike. A brazen strike on Russia's bridge that links it to the illegally annexed Crimean Peninsula. The roadway a mangled mess after Ukrainian sea drones targeted it just before dawn. At least two people, Russian parents of a small girl, were killed in the attack, according to Russian officials. The child was injured. Traffic on the critical highway grinding to a halt. The trains temporarily stopped. Tonight, Russian President Vladimir Putin called it a terrorist attack, vowing there will be a response and that the Russian military is preparing options. New satellite imagery shows extensive damage from the blast. A section of the bridge knocked out. Russian authorities now say it won't be fully functional until November. Ukraine quickly claimed that it was behind the secret operation, a rare admission, saying it was a joint operation by Ukraine's Navy and security services, which cryptically tweeted the bridge was sleeping again. A reference to a huge explosion in October last year as a fuel truck exploded on the 12-mile, 19-kilometer-long bridge, igniting a passing train. Putin then called it an act of sabotage, appearing on the bridge when it was reopened two months later. A direct strike on his nearly $4 billion project, connecting Russia to Crimea, that he personally inaugurated in 2018. It has become a vital supply route for both the Crimean population and the Russian military's fight in southern Ukraine. Ukraine sees the bridge not just as a ripe, 
but highly symbolic target. Hours after the blasts, Russia announced it is pulling out of the international agreement that allows Ukraine to ship grain to the world. Today's decision by the Russian Federation will strike a blow to people in need everywhere. But it will not stop our efforts to facilitate the unimpeded access to global markets for food products and fertilizers from both Ukraine and the Russian Federation. Russia claims the deal only benefited Ukraine, while its own food and fertilizer have been blocked. The decision was not connected, Russia said, to the bridge attack. The last grain ship sailed from Odessa's port on Sunday. A United Nations official tells CNN that Russia's announcement appears final. And Jake, uh, the United Nations has severely criticized this, the global community calling it uh, unconscionable. That is the word of U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who went on to say that Russia is responsible for denying food to people who desperately need it. Global widespread condemnation. As for that bridge attack, Jake, uh, Vladimir Putin says says he wants work to restore it to begin immediately, uh, but it won't be back up and running until mid-September at the earliest, according to a senior Russian official. And that's just half the roadway. It won't be fully operational until three and a half months from now, the beginning of November. This was a significant attack by Ukraine, Jake. Alex Marquardt in Odessa for us. Thank you so much. Let's talk more uh, about this bridge attack. Uh, with retired U.S. Brigadier General uh, Steve Anderson, who was most recently in charge of Army logistics, readiness, weapon sustainment, and war reserves. Uh, General Anderson, thanks so much uh, for being here. So uh, Russia spent nearly $4 billion building the 12-mile bridge after it illegally annexed uh, Crimea in 2014. Putin said today that the bridge attack had no military significance. I find that hard to believe. Is that true? It's not true at all, Jake. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, the hits just keep on coming for Vladimir Putin. I mean, this is just another chink in the armor. I mean, we had the mutiny three weeks ago with Pergosian, and we we hear more and more about insubordination within the ranks at senior levels of the general officers in the the Russian military. And now you got an attack on this bridge right here, uh, the longest bridge in all of Europe, built five years ago with great fanfare by Vladimir Putin, So to attack this is strategically and politically very, very significant. Now, operationally, probably not that significant. I think they're probably going to be able to repair this within a week week or two, perhaps. It's not quite as significant as the attack that occurred back in October. But nevertheless, you know, anytime you can stop logistics from flowing in to Crimea and to resupply the troops up there in the north, this is a very, very good day for the Ukrainian army. And what type of weapon was used? And and what might that reveal about Ukraine's capabilities weeks into this counteroffensive. Well, Jake, this reveals an awful lot. I mean, this is essentially a surfboard on steroids. I mean, think about this thing uh, traveling at about 80 kilometers an hour with about 200 kilograms of explosives on it. And what they were able to do was use this device and go about 500 kilometers all the way out here, undetected by the Russian Navy. I mean, that's a very significant thing. That shows that they have the ability now to conduct deep strikes against the Russians. And that puts all the Russian Navy at risk. I mean, any any ship that's out here in the Black Sea now could potentially be targeted by the Ukrainians who are showing themselves to be incredibly resourceful, incredibly intelligent and resilient in in putting weapons like this into the war. And there are are new concerns about um, a deteriorating security situation in the Black Sea after Russia pulled out of this grain deal, um, which removes guarantees for safe navigation 
for ships carrying grain that is, you know, needed all over the world. Which, which parts of the Black Sea are you looking at and watching most closely? Well, probably the port of Odessa is right here. And, of course, Istanbul's down here. So they're going to this is the, the quickest shipping route. But they're going to try to, of course, conduct some kind of a blockade all the way across here of the Crimea to stop any of these grain shipments from getting down. But we can't let that happen. Jake, I've been in Ukraine, and I've seen the incredible agricultural wealth of this, com- this, this country. They are the breadbasket for the eastern hemisphere. We've got to make sure that this grain gets through there. Now, what today's attack indicates is that when they try to conduct this blockade, they're going to be able to, the Ukrainians, target a lot of the, the ships that are out there, these battleships and the destroyers that are out there. They're going to try to interdict these shipments and conduct this kind of military blockade of the port of Odessa. We can't let that happen. Go back to the bridge for one second, if you would. I just want to talk about, a little bit, if you would, about the psychological effect uh, the the hitting the strike on this this bridge will have on on Vladimir Putin or is having on him because he he's really he loves this bridge absolutely he, I mean they built it this is a huge psychological I mean obviously it shows the Ukrainians are still in this fight and they have the capability to conduct deep strikes uh, but it's showing once again that his army is not as good as it, it it is or he wants it to be he's had a lot of problems here over the last couple of weeks this is another psychological blow to vladimir putin i really think the walls are starting to close in on vladimir putin this is another indicator of that jake all right general anderson thank you so much i uh, really appreciate it coming up next the courtship of sorts between a line of gop presidential contenders and evangelical conservatives the messages the candidates are trying to drive home plus New details just in on that search for a two-year-old girl and her nine-month-old brother swept away in flash flooding in Pennsylvania. And the apology from Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal after she labeled Israel, quote, a racist state, how her own colleagues, Democrats, are calling her out. Stay with us. Cue the music for the 2024 lead. Only 477 days until the presidential election. But well before that, we are currently only 37 days out from the first major event this election cycle. That is the first Republican presidential primary debate. That's going to be next month, August 23rd. The busy calendar underscores why so many GOP candidates are out and about speaking at summits and town halls, even booking interviews outside the conservative media bubble, such as my exclusive tomorrow with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. CNN's Kristen Holmes is in Arlington, Virginia, at an event today that has candidates touting their stance on Mideast foreign policy. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis among a handful of 2024 GOP hopefuls aiming to woo evangelical voters outside Washington, D.C. Monday. We will never waver in our defense of Israel. As candidates work to pitch themselves as an alternative to frontrunner former President Donald Trump. So many people run for office and they promise big things. And then they underdeliver on their promises. Uh, that's not what we do in Florida. In Florida, we do make bold promises, but we overdeliver um, on our promises. As the race to win the Republican nomination heats up, with presidential hopefuls hitting the campaign trail. As commander in chief on day one, we whip out the political agenda out of the military. And the airwaves this weekend. And so you're leading people by 50 and 60 points and... You say, why would you be doing a debate? He should show up at the debates and defend his record. Some candidates, including Trump, speaking to young conservatives at the Turning Point Action Conference in Florida, taking aim at top rival Ron DeSantis, who skipped the home state event. I don't know why he's not here this couple of days, but he should be here. He should be here representing himself. 
the Florida governor campaigning in Iowa and Tennessee and downplaying Trump's lead in the polls. At the end of the day, um, the, the Bragg indictment just elevated uh, him. There was a lot of sympathy, but then I think just dominating the media coverage. I had gotten a lot of coverage in the aftermath of the midterm election. We always knew with these national polls that that was a sugar high. The money race also coming into focus as candidates filed their latest campaign finance reports. DeSantis reports showing his campaign burning through cash at a rapid rate, raising $20 million, but already spending nearly $8 million, including $1 million each on travel and payroll, and another $800,000 on digital fundraising consulting. DeSantis contrasting his haul with Trump's. We raised more money than Donald Trump did into his campaign, who of course was the former president. The former president's report showing his campaign raised $17.7 million in the second quarter, leaving it with $22.5 million cash on hand at the end of June. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott just behind him with $21.1 million after raising nearly $6 million over the last three months. After announcing his White House bid last month, former Vice President Mike Pence getting off to a slow start, bringing in less than $1.2 million, placing him near the back of the pack. And Jake, I just want to quickly mention those numbers on the Democratic side. President Joe Biden announcing he raised $72 million with the Democratic National Committee. But I did speak to some Democrats who were concerned about the filing, particularly when it came to those small dollar donations. That was about $10.2 million. Now, that is roughly half of what then-President Obama raised in the same time frame, 2012, in his re-election effort. And of course, as we know, often those small dollar donations are linked to enthusiasm about a candidate. But I am hearing from a lot of Democrats who say it is still early. He has time to make that up. They believe that it's possible he can get that enthusiasm back behind him. Jake? All right, Kristen Holmes in uh, Northern Virginia. Thanks so much. Let's discuss. So um, Kirsten and Jonah, these new fundraising numbers, um, they're starting to give some hints as to who's going to make the debate stage because that's one of the uh, requirements. You need to have 40,000 uh, donors. It could be $1 in donations, but you need to at least 40,000. Uh, who do you see as having momentum uh, right now, and who do you see as lagging behind? Well, the easy one is, is Mike Pence, right? I mean, he's the former vice president of the United States. He's got huge name ID. He's got a considerable network, and it looks like he may not be able to make the debate, and he only raised $1.2 million. Chris Christie raised $1.6. He got in later. He has the highest negatives of anybody in the party because he's going after Trump. But I think a lot of people donated to him because it's pay-per-view as far as they're concerned. They want to see him on the stage with Donald Trump going after Donald Trump. And so they paid to have him on there. Um, the DeSantis numbers, I think the, the most telling thing is that he maxed out his, like 70% of his donors. And that's, that's, that's a very Scott Walker kind of problem to mm. have. But he also just raised a lot of money. I think he'll be fine. Um, it's just... He's he's stalled in the polls. That's a real problem. for Yeah. And, and Kirsten, uh, in terms of DeSantis, in the second quarter, he raised more than 20 million dollars. His campaign has spent nearly eight million dollars since May. Not a lot of small uh, do, do, uh, as many small do, dollar donations as he as he would like. Theoretically, he's obviously laying off some staffers. That's not great news for any campaign. But he also and this this doesn't get talked a lot about, but talked about a lot. But he has this super PAC that is just sitting on this huge amount of cash. 
Yeah. Well, and the thing is, he he is going to need more cash than a Donald Trump is, for example. We see how he's burning through the money. And that's because he doesn't have the name ID, of course, that Donald Trump has. Donald Trump was the president. Right. right? So he everybody already also a TV star before that and a TV right. star before that. And everybody knows who he is. They know what he believe what he believes. They know what he's going to do for the most part. So he doesn't need as much money. He doesn't have high priced consultants on the staff. He is his high priced consultant. So I think that I think that DeSantis needs that money. Um, it does show that there is an appetite for another candidate. It's, you know, Donald Trump is still ahead, but there is an appetite for another candidate. And then you have sort of go down to the next tier of a Tim Scott is, you know, he's not raising like crazy amounts of money, but there's some appetite for him as well. So, you know, I think that it shows us basically what the polls are showing us, I think, you know, which yeah. is Donald Trump's leading the pack and DeSantis is behind him. But, you know, there is at least some interest in him. You mentioned Scott Walker, not favorably, a former uh, Wisconsin <laughs> governor who a lot of people thought would be the shining light of the Republican Party in, I don't even remember what year it was, 2020, 2016, 2016. 2015, more 2015, like, yeah. 2016, yeah. and he flamed out. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, Dana Bash, uh, my colleague, talked with him, uh, the former Wisconsin governor, Scott Walker, today about the race. Uh, he was basically where Scott, uh, where, uh, where Ron DeSantis is now. He basically was there uh, back in 2015, 16. Take a listen. If Ron DeSantis or any of the other candidates are going to have any shot against uh, Donald Trump, President Trump, they've got to make a really powerful case that they're going to be even more bold uh, than Donald Trump was during his four years in office. And that's a tough that's a tough sell. Uh, now, he is obviously uh, DeSantis, uh, try, you know, he sh- his staff shake up a little bit. He's going to talk to me, which is like the first, you know, legacy corporate uh, media interview it's gonna uh, turn it all around. that he's done, <laughs> that it's the tapper bump, I'm telling you. But, uh, but what, what do you think? What does he do? You, do you agree with Scott Walker that he needs to even in some ways be even bolder than Donald Trump? I don't know. For, I mean, look, if he stabs you with a ballpoint pen, all bets are off. No, <laughs> but um, right. Pulls through the roof. Exactly. Kill but, tapper. Uh, pulls through the roof. Wound. Um, but uh, look, I, I think the fundamental fundamental dynamic of, of this race is a lot of these guys are running as if it's an open primary, right? It's like an open seat. There's no incumbent. Um, but the reality is, as messed up as it is, is that Donald Trump is essentially the incumbent. And he has, and if you look at it from that perspective, he's actually a shockingly weak incumbent. Imagine an incumbent president only being at 50% in the polls in a primary. And like 30% in Iowa. I mean, state right. by state, he's even weaker. Right. But... These guys are all running as if he's not in the race at all. And that's the problem, is, with the exception of Christie and a little bit Asa Hutchinson. They're running as if a special prosecutor, a lightning bolt, something is just going to remove Trump from the yeah. equation. Yeah. And they're just sort of circling around playing these games, not actually running a campaign against the guy that they have to beat. Yeah, I mean, I think DeSantis is already doing what Scott Walker says he should be doing. I think he has been trying to be the Trumpy. Trump alternative, right? Versus the, I'm a little nicer, softer, maybe like a Tim Scott, you know, who's conservative, but isn't bombastic and isn't going to behave the way Donald Trump does or say the things that cause so much heartburn among certain voters in the Republican Party. So I think I think he is doing it. And Jonah's right. Everyone's just waiting for something to happen to Donald Trump. And then they think they're going to step into that lane. So DeSantis thinks I'll step into the Trumpy lane. And other people think I'll step into the people who don't like Trump lane. Yeah, I have a very depressing read on this, which is that if you think about it in terms of who is the most entertaining candidate, well, it's Donald Trump. I mean, I don't find it entertaining, but I think that's a fair statement. And then who are the candidates who have some sort of momentum, some sort of win behind them? It's Vivek Ramaswamy, who I think is sort of a fraud, but he's entertaining. He's got like this sort of energy. 
and Chris Christie, who's like throwing haymakers. And you see those guys rising in the polls. Who are, who's not entertaining? Well, with all due respect to Mike Pence, he's the watch paint dry candidate. And it's why he can't get a leg up. And it just, I think it points to the fact that a lot of our politics now is about who's entertaining rather than who's qualified. It's really good that you said with all due respect. <laughs> no offense, but you're really bored. I said no offense. Um, it's just six months to Iowa. DeSantis has been working that state very hard. He's close to Governor Kim Reynolds. She hasn't officially endorsed him or anything like that, but she goes to every one of his events, and I think mm-hmm. she's only gone to, to one Trump event. Trump has been attacking her. Um, DeSantis has been sidling up to her. Take a listen. Would you consider her as a potential vice presidential pick in this country? Of course. I mean, she's, she's one of the uh, top public servants in America. You know, I thought the attacks on her were totally, totally out of hand and totally unnecessary. Uh, we should be thanking uh, good Republican office holders. So it's for anybody at home who couldn't hear that, there was a reporter saying, would you consider Kim Reynolds to be your running mate? I mean, that seems smarter than attacking her, considering she is a very popular two-term uh, incumbent Republican governor. Very conservative. Yeah, though, I mean, Donald Trump has been consistently consistent in not doing the things that people think are smart, and it sort of works for him, so I, I don't really know. But look, if DeSantis won Iowa, that could change the race, right? So Iowa is, you know, when people, when Barack Obama won Iowa, it changed everything, right? So, um, you know, it's smart for him to be trying to win Iowa. I don't know if it's going to ultimately make a difference. But we'll see. January 15th. Thanks, one and all, for being here. Really appreciate it. Next hour, I'm going to speak to a Republican candidate. I talked to Chris Christie yesterday, Asa Hutchinson, the former Arkansas governor, today about his 2024 campaign. And, of course, tomorrow here on The Lead, a CNN exclusive Florida governor, GOP presidential candidate Ron DeSantis on the campaign trail will be uh, in South Carolina. You can see that interview tomorrow, 4 p.m. Eastern, right here on The Lead. It's going to change everything. (laughs) The the entire race is going to be shaken from the interview. The world is experiencing a great hell of heat waves. Why this summer's weather is so different than years past. Stay with us. In our national lead, a search in Pennsylvania is expanding for a toddler and her baby brother who disappeared in flash flooding. Their family car got stuck in heavy rain Saturday afternoon just north of Philadelphia. The father managed to grab his four-year-old son, but all the water swept away. The two-year-old girl, Matilda, and her nine-month-old brother, Conrad. Their mother, Katie, in the car did not make it. Search crews found her remains yesterday. Their grandmother was also in the car and escaped. The family was from South Carolina visiting relatives, which brings us now to the Earth Matters lead today and the extreme weather conditions and the extreme heat. Just yesterday, 35 cities across the United States hit records high temperatures, according to the National Weather Service. One was Death Valley, nicknamed the hottest place on Earth. Temperatures there reached 128 degrees Fahrenheit. South Florida is under a heat advisory. In Miami, the heat index, or the feels-like temperature, has topped 100 degrees for more than 30 days straight. Same for El Paso, Texas, where temperatures have exceeded 100 degrees for the last 32 days. Yes, extreme temperatures are typical for mid-July, but as scientists note, these long stretches of extreme heat are what they see as cause for alarm. That extreme heat is not just being felt here in the United States. It's being felt by millions of people all around the world as the heat wave sweeps across parts of Europe and Asia, too. One top climate group warns that, quote, heat hell is worldwide at the moment, and that those extreme temperatures are nothing short of dangerous. Bill Weir, we don't usually see these record-breaking temperatures that we usually, until later in the summer. Why is this summer expected to be hotter than last summer? 
cooling patterns in the Pacific there, which actually hid a lot of the pent-up energy in the oceans, which have been hiding a lot of the heat for the last century or so. Right now, every second of every day, uh, our planet absorbs as much extra heat as 10 Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs per second. And now we're seeing the full result of that. Now, we have wildfire smoke, which is a result of drier forests up in Canada and easier burning uh, conditions there. We have those devastating flash floods that took the lives of those children, uh, as you were describing, north of Philadelphia. Those are the results. But heat is really the engine of all of this. A warmer planet holds too much water in some places, not enough in others. And the rate that it's going up now, scientists are used to seeing sort of ocean temperature records broken by a half a degree. It's been shattered by five degrees in the North Atlantic. The temperature around the Florida Keys was 98 degrees over the weekend. That's hot tub temperatures right there, which is devastating to coral ecosystems. So unfortunately, uh, this is sort of our new reality now. There will be other La Nina years that will probably cool things off a bit. But this is, this is our new reality. Last week, the World Meteorological Organization said we're in uncharted territory. Is this just the new normal, these unbelievably extreme weather events? That's the prediction, and it, it, it just makes sense. Nothing is changing in terms of the amount of sort of planet-baking pollution uh, is, that is being put into the sky. It's, it's interesting that John Kerry has just restarted climate talks with China, the two largest polluters. Uh, in China, he landed on a day where they recorded 126 degree temperature in the northern part of that country, a new record. He's asking for them to come down on methane, which their natural gas is the way it's sold to us, which is devastating uh, heat trapping pollution, like nail down a target number for them to decrease that and to stop putting two uh, coal-fired power plants online a week, which is what they have been up to. At the same time, they're leading the world by far in renewables but so much uh, hunger for energy in that country, they're still burning a lot of coal. But meanwhile, back at home, John Kerry has Republicans who were grilling him last week with charts claiming that climate change isn't even real and, and calling him a fraud, essentially, to his face, that this is all part of a hoax. So that's the tension politically, geopolitically, that we're dealing with right now, despite just red flags everywhere, 3,500 uh, new high temperature records set globally uh, in the last week or so, about 1,500 so far yesterday just in the United States. And as you say, we're just in July. Yeah, it's going to get worse in August. Joe Bill Weir, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Democratic Congresswoman uh, Pramila Jayapal is getting a strong rebuke from her fellow Democrats after she called Israel a, quote, racist state. Next, I'm going to speak with one of the Democratic critics calling her out. Stay with us. In our world lead, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu finally has his invitation to meet with President Biden here in the United States. According to the Israeli government, the invite came today during what the Israelis are calling a long and warm phone conversation. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby later said the whens and wheres are being worked out and the visit probably will happen before the end of this year. The U.S.-Israeli relationship also figures in our politics lead. There is major Backlash after the head of the House Progressive Caucus, Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, went well beyond criticizing Netanyahu's policies and instead outright called Israel a racist state. As CNN's Manu Raju reports, Jayapal has since tried to walk the comments back, but for many of her critics, it may be too late. Hey guys, can I say something?
Progressive leader Pramila Jayapal tonight trying to contain the fallout after comments labeling Israel as a racist state. At a weekend event in Chicago, interrupted by pro-Palestinian activists, Jayapal said, We have been fighting to make it clear that Israel is a racist state, that the Palestinian people deserve self-determination and autonomy. The remark ricocheted across the political spectrum and forced Democratic leaders to issue a rare rebuke of her comments on Sunday evening. Apologizing to those she offended, Jayapal said in a statement, I attempted to defuse a tense situation during a panel where fellow members of Congress were being protested. I do not believe the idea of Israel as a nation is racist. I spoke to her several times yesterday. I think she understands that uh, she misspoke. Israel's not a, a racist state. The controversy comes amid growing tension among progressives over the actions taken by the Israeli government and sympathy for the Palestinian cause. Speaking to CNN on Friday, Jayapal laid out her concerns. The violence, settler violence that's happening in, in Israel and the West Bank, Um, the uh, annexation of settlements that have been happening over the last several years, Netanyahu's uh, uh, collaboration with extreme right elements of, of Israel, and the fact that we are getting further and further away from the ability to actually legitimately talk about a two-state solution. The rift comes as Israeli President Isaac Herzog prepares to address Congress on Wednesday. While Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries supports the visit, Jayapal told CNN she might not attend, as some liberals have promised to skip it. So should the speaker not have invited him? I think this is not a good time for, for that to happen, yes. The GOP trying to drive a wedge between Democrats and support for Israel. I think if the Democrats want to believe that they do not have a conference that continues to make anti-Semitic remarks, they need to do something about it. Now, I also asked Speaker McCarthy about a separate controversy, this dealing with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and comments he made over that were surfaced over the weekend suggesting that COVID-19 was somehow ethnically targeted to spare Jewish people. I asked him about that false conspiracy theory and whether RFK Jr. should still testify this week before a House subcommittee. He said, I disagree with the comments that RFK Jr. made, but he also said that, that he should still testify before the House subcommittee, saying that hearing is about censorship and they don't want to go about censoring people, including RFK Jr. Jake? CNN's Manu Raju, thanks. Uh, we're now joined by Democratic uh, Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz uh, from Florida. Uh, Congresswoman, thanks for joining us. So what was your response to Congresswoman Jayapal's comments? Um, and uh, I guess we heard from Congressman Brad Schneider in that piece saying that he had, he had talked to her. What is your understanding of the, how those conversations went? And did you talk to her? Um, I have not spoken to Congresswoman Jayapal directly, but uh, a group of us have been talking over the week- throughout the weekend since uh, the Congresswoman made uh, the really egregious, unfortunate statement, uh, Israel is certainly not a racist state. I was glad to see that she walked back and clarified her comments to some degree and apologized for the hurt that she caused. But, I mean, this is emblematic of the importance of each of us being responsible in the moment, in the heat of a moment, to, to not just blurt out uh, you know, extreme statements and to think more carefully and thoughtfully about the hurt and the impact that, that might result. And, and she clearly did not. And, uh, you know, there, there, is, there are times when it's just imperative that those that are concerned and, and, and when a statement is made that is as extreme as that one was, that it be called out. 
and that's so, what we're planning to do. You, you said that that's, um, that's one of the things that's important about this. Um, some Jewish journalists uh, and, and uh, Israeli journalists have also suggested this is emblematic of a rising anti-Israel and even anti-Semitic trend, uh, not only on the far right, but on the far left, because this happened. Congresswoman Jayapal was trying to defend your fellow uh, progressive uh, Democratic congresswoman, uh, Jan Schakowsky from Illinois. She was being booed, heckled because she hasn't signed off on this legislation uh, pertaining to some Palestinian issues. To, to be candid, very few House Democrats have co-sponsored that legislation. That's right. Jeremy Benamy of the progressive group J Street says Schakowsky's Jewish and she constantly gets attacked by progressives for not supporting that legislation, while plenty of other progressive House Democrats who aren't Jewish somehow escape criticism. Well, that was a room of people who are hostile to the state of Israel and the U.S.-Israel relationship. Let me just be here. Like, the overriding thing that's important here is that the U.S.-Israel relationship has strong bipartisan support. Israel is a pluralistic society, you know, the only democracy in the Middle East and one that is a close ally of ours. Obviously, they are surrounded by enemies and essentially are under barrage, rocket barrages from Iran's proxies regularly. We have overwhelming bipartisan support in Congress, uh, a handful for, the, for Israel and her safety and security and the U.S.-Israel relationship. And there are a handful uh, on both sides of the aisle, uh, on the polls, that, uh, that do not support Israel. But it really has been limited to only a handful, and we've demonstrated that repeatedly. Uh, quickly, because I do want to get to what RFK Jr. said over the weekend, that is not to say that you support the Netanyahu government policies in the West Bank, correct? Correct. I, I do not support the Netanyahu policies, and I have traveled to Israel with Leader Jeffries and had an opportunity to speak directly with Prime Minister Netanyahu about those concerns. We have to make sure that, uh, that we don't make it harder to move towards a two-state solution, and we have to make sure that, uh, that we strengthen Israel's ability to remain a Jewish and democratic state. So let's talk about what uh, RFK Jr. said, because the New York Post published this video of, of him talking about the developments of bioweapons, and then he shared this deranged conspiracy theory, quote, COVID-19 is targeted to attack Caucasians and black people. The people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese. We don't know whether it's deliberately targeted, unquote. Obviously, that is a false statement, and the millions of dead Asians uh, and Ashkenazi Jews uh, attest to that. What's your response when you hear that? Somebody who's polling in the double digits among Democratic voters. I mean, RFK Jr. is not a Democrat. He isn't remotely uh, close or aligned with Democratic values. He, he espouses lunatic conspiracy theories, and this was just the most recent one. Uh, what's, what's shocking to me is that the Republican majority has invited him to testify at the House Weaponization Subcommittee uh, this Thursday. And uh, you know, I've uh, co-led a letter with my colleagues Dan Goldman and uh, Judy Chu to urge the, the leadership in the, on the Republican side to withdraw his invitation because we should not be giving the largest platform in the world to baseless conspiracy theorists who have no fa factual basis for their, their positions and who are, in his case, fanning the flames of hate, anti-Semitism, anti-Asian bias at a time when the, the, that anti-Asian and anti-Semitic hatred is resulting in violence against both, par both communities across the country. Well, Speaker, Speaker McCarthy says they're going to still let him speak because the hearing is about censorship on this government weaponization committee that you're on, and they don't want to, they don't want to censor him. 
Well, I mean, they certainly didn't hesitate to remove Democratic members of Congress for the things that they said. So they have a track record of taking action when they don't like what someone has said and, and held them accountable in their mind. That is exactly what should be done here. Speaker McCarthy said that he thinks what uh, RFK Jr. said uh, and is, I guess he said it, he didn't agree with it and that it was inappropriate. Uh, why would you give a platform, the largest platform in the country, to someone who's going to spew baseless conspiracy theorists theory that has no basis in fact and that is going to cause other people harm. That's on them if more people get hurt as a result of who the, the, the Republican majority brings in front of Congress as witnesses. Congresswoman they, sh Debbie they should rescind his invitation. Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz of Florida, thank you so much. The simple Thanks, error in millions of Pentagon emails that has messages falling into the wrong hands. Stay with us. In our tech lead, if you've ever gotten in trouble for a typo, this might make you feel better. You probably weren't emailing military secrets to a foreign country, at least. CNN's Orrin Lieberman's at the Pentagon for us. Orrin, millions of emails intended for Pentagon employees, dot mil, are inadvertently being sent to email accounts for the African country, Mali? And that's exactly the issue here you point out, the domain you are emailing. If you want to email the military, the end of the email account should be dot M-I-L. If you want to email Mali, the end of that email account is dot ml and that little i in there stuck between the m and the l is very much a world of difference in terms of who receives the email that you're trying to send this issue became publicly known because a dutch internet entrepreneur whose company managed the dot ml domain has been getting these emails he tells cnn for a decade or even more he's been flagging this email he says uh, to U.S. government agencies, including the U.S. Embassy in Mali, trying to get this sorted out before his contract to handle the .ml domain runs out, essentially, uh, in the coming weeks or months. Now, most of the emails, he says, are nothing of significance. They're simply spam, but some of them contain sensitive information or controlled information, information that the Department of Defense should take better care of. For example, he says earlier this year, there was email, uh, an email that contained the information for hotel arrangements uh, for General James McConville, the Chief of Staff of the Army, as he was traveling in Indonesia. This, of course, is what the Pentagon is trying to avoid. Here's DOD earlier today. We're aware of these unauthorized disclosures um, of controlled national security information. Um, we, uh, over the course of, uh, I mean, as you've seen from when we had our first unauthorized disclosure um, from earlier this year, we've implemented policy and training mechanisms um, and put in place. And in terms of what we have here on the DOD systems is that um, when you send an email from a DOD email address, it will not, and you send it to a .ml email address, it will bounce back. So a DOD email address will not be able to send to that email address. So just to underscore that point, the issue, the issue isn't sending an email to .ml from a DOD account, that won't go through. But if you're using a private account, a Yahoo or a Gmail, Jake, that's where the issue can be. And that's where the DOD is trying to address some of this training to make sure this doesn't happen. All right. Or a labor man at the Pentagon. Thanks so much. New details just in on those Gilgo Beach serial murders in New York State. What police are now saying about their investigation into the architect who was arrested last week. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a flood of new evidence has come in tied to the, suspe the suspected Long Island serial killer, according to the district attorney. And now police are searching the suspect's home to see if he kept anything from the victims. Plus, 
It will be harder to breathe again in a large swath of the United States due to smoke from those Canadian wildfires that have now burned an area larger than the entire state of Ohio. When will these fires go away? When will they burn out? Leading this hour, however, with the 2024 race and a preview of what a second Trump White House might look like. The New York Times reporting that Donald Trump plans a, quote, sweeping expansion of presidential power if he occupies the Oval Office again, intending to bring independent agencies directly under his control. This comes as the Republican presidential race is heating up with only 37 days to go until the first GOP debate. One Republican candidate, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, will join me live in just moments. But first, on the Democratic side, an appearance by Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia is terrifying Democrats and sparking speculation of a White House run for Manchin on a third-party ticket. CNN's Jeff Zeleny is in Goffstown, New Hampshire, ahead of the No Labels event. That's the name of the group. And this is expected to start at any moment. Jeff, Senator Manchin has pointedly refused to rule out a presidential bid or an independent ticket. Democrats must be nervously watching this No Labels event for a potential announcement. There's no doubt that Democrats, particularly the White House, uh, watching carefully the no labels movement. This has been a a movement underway for more than a decade or so in Washington, promoting bipartisanship. But tonight, here outside Manchester, New Hampshire, at uh, St. Anselm College, where many presidential candidates have stood in this very room to give presidential speeches, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin uh, is coming. He's not yet said if he's running for re-election to the Senate. He also uh, has not ruled out a third-party presidential run. He'll be appearing on stage behind me here with former Utah Governor uh, John Huntsman. The two of them are the uh, frontmen, if you will, for no labels. That is the group that is uh, promoting a unity uh, ticket. Now, they have not decided if they are going to um, go forward with this in 2024. And the reality is they're only on the the a ballot in about five or six states, but by the end of this year, they are raising $70 million with the hope of getting on the, the a ballot in a majority of states across the country. And that's exactly what is worrying some Democrats, because they believe that uh, they realize that there's an enthusiasm gap for President Biden. They realize that the idea of a rematch between Joe Biden and Donald Trump simply is not palatable with many Americans. So that's where no labels is coming in. But one thing uh, they are doing tonight is releasing a, a policy book. They're handing out these books to everyone. It's called a common sense policy book. They're really trying to strike a middle ground on abortion, on immigration rights, on gun rights. But Jake, it's more of a uh, utopia in a deeply divided Washington. So this is very much uh, the prospect of what could come with a third party ticket. But much has to happen between now and then. But Joe Manchin, he knows he's getting a lot of attention for this. Of course, he's famous for being a thorn in Democratic uh, Party side. So he'll be doing that tonight as well. Again, he says he has no intention of being a spoiler in the 2024 race, but that's what many Democrats fear he could be if he moved ahead with this. All right, Jeff Zeleny in Goffstown, New Hampshire. Thanks so much. Also on our 2024 lead, presidential power may never look the same. If voters put Donald Trump back in the White House, Trump and his allies are planning a major expansion of the powers of the executive branch. According to the New York Times, those plans include bringing independent agencies under direct presidential control. That would include the Federal Communications Commission and the Federal Trade Commission and chiefly the Justice Department. He also would refuse to spend money Congress has appropriated for programs he does not like, and he would remove officials he does not like from intelligence agencies. Uh, With us now, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, CNN political commentator and former White House communications director uh, for the Trump administration. Alyssa, let's say it's 2025, Trump is president once again. Uh, What do you think it will look like 
if he is able to increase his authority over every part of government, knowing what you know about him having worked for him? Well, listen, uh, Susan Glasner has a great analogy she uses in her book talking about the Trump uh, time in office where she compares him to a dinosaur in Jurassic Park learning to open the door, saying he could be more dangerous in a second term because he understands how the machines of government actually work. And I've warned about this. I can confirm everything that's in that New York Times piece because most of it was stuff that the former president wanted to do in his first term. But aides like myself and others talked him out of. And at the time, the argument was this is too unpopular with the public. Like you need to focus on your reelection. But one that stands out to me and I've kind of been raising alarm bells about is this uh, this effort to basically eliminate the civil service or basically make it so it's so much so much easier to fire career subject matter experts. That is an effort to make the government purely partisan and a staffed with loyalists who are going to carry out his agenda. And having been in the, the Trump White House during covid, I can't even really express how dangerous that would be had we not had experts there. So this is incredibly important reporting people need to pay attention to. So one of the people mapping out this new approach is someone you know, former Trump White House aide John McEntee. He was the uh, uh, personnel chief. Here's what he told the New York Times, quote, our current executive branch was conceived of by liberals for the purpose of promulgating liberal policies. What's necessary is a complete system overhaul, unquote. Do you think the system needs an overhaul? No, I think Johnny McEntee needs a civics lesson. Uh, there's nothing conservative about trying to strengthen these, uh, t- trying to like increase the power of the presidency and the executive branch. I'm old enough to remember when I was working for conservatives on Capitol Hill and we wanted to rein in the executive branch from overreach. What's laid out in the New York Times reporting is the opposite. It is making the president significantly more powerful than the co-equal branches, the judiciary and the legislative branch. And it's kind of being pitched under the guise of dismantling the administration administrative state, something that is popular with conservatives, but that's not, in fact, what Donald Trump wants to do. He wants to basically strengthen every agency with loyalists to him, staff them with loyalists to him, and then bring any independent agencies under his purview so he has more authority over them. Well, I mean, the slippery slope of it is, even if you, for instance, uh, think that Donald, you want to give Donald Trump that power, not you, but somebody watching wants to give Donald Trump that power, And then Donald Trump gets the power and he gets to take away CNN's license uh, to broadcast uh, or let's uh, actually I don't think we're regulated by the FCC. Let's say he takes away CBS's license to broadcast CBS News. Well, guess what? There will be a Democratic president at some point. Does he get to take away someone else's? I mean, that's how it works. Right. I mean, once these standards go away, they go away for everybody. And by the way, the press will come under attack. I don't know. This wasn't in the reporting, but um, CNN's Caitlin Collins knows well that the former president, when Trump was in office, he wanted to eliminate seats from the press briefing room. He wanted to relocate the press into a completely different part off the actual White House campus um, to create, you know, to take away that er that era of being able to oversee and report on the comings and goings. So there'll absolutely be impacts. It's not dissimilar, frankly, from the argument that Mike Pence could overturn the elections because, okay, if you want to set up that precedent, then you're saying Vice President Harris can as well. It's not conservative. It's not Republican. And folks need to pay attention to it. Well, it would have been interesting news for Vice President Al Gore that he could have sent, the, he sent Florida back to the states and declared himself president. Um, thank you so much, Alyssa Farrah Griffin. I really uh, appreciate your talking to us. Uh, here now, Republican presidential candidate Asa Hutchinson, former governor of Arkansas. Uh, governor Hutchinson, um, you released a new federal law enforcement proposal today, which would increase transparency in government institutions, uh, many of which have lost tr- public trust. 
Uh, one element of your pro- proposal is to, quote, reaffirm the critical relationship between president and attorney general, emphasize the oversight role of the attorney general and the non-interference principle of the president in specific investigations. Uh, for those of us who believe in an independent <laughs> Justice Department, that's that's music to their ears. But that's the exact opposite of what we're hearing uh, from Donald Trump uh, in this reporting, who who wants less independence from the Justice Department, from the FC, FCC, the FTC. W- what do you make of that? Well, Donald Trump has undermined our rule of law. He's undermined our law enforcement agencies. And sure, there were abuses back in 2016 uh, that required changes. Uh, Christopher Ray has made some uh, transformation, but I've laid out here uh, the broadest and most comprehensive reform of federal law enforcement in my lifetime. And I was there uh, when Ronald Reagan moved the FBI into drug enforcement. Uh, I was there whenever George W. Bush uh, changed the FBI. So under Attorney General Ashcroft, they would be engaged in intelligence collection and not just not just prosecution. So I've seen those changes. What this does is it makes our federal agencies more focused, more accountable, uh, and uh, more transparent. And that's the key thing under our, whenever they have such power, we want to make sure there's good checks and balances placed. We're going to narrow the jurisdiction of the FBI. We're going to bring the FBI more in, in, under the Department of Justice so that they're not uh, flying as a totally independent agency, but they're woven into the Department of Justice. We want to maintain the Justice Department's uh, independence in terms of, of investigations on singular cases mm-hmm. so they're not interfered with by the White House. But it's also simple things like the FBI. Let's make sure that they record interviews as a general rule versus relying upon an agent, a hand transcription of it in a It's ridiculous when everybody's phone can record everything. And that is a a rule that they've had forever. It needs to be changed. I'm advocating that. We're taking drug enforcement away from them so that they can be more focused on counterterrorism and those missions. And so this will be more effective in fighting fentanyl with one agency as the key lead coordinating those efforts. Very interesting. Uh, Let's talk about your campaign, um, which uh, reported about $500,000 in contributions in the second quarter. Um, Just under 7,000 people have donated. You need 40,000, obviously, to qualify for the debate stage. Um, It's disappointing for people who are rooting for you out there. It's a a disappointing uh, financial disclosure. Um, What's going wrong? Well, we've got to raise more money. We've got to get to the 40,000 donors. We've got a lot of things that are working to accomplish that goal, and uh, we're going to get there. Uh, We just need a lot of help uh, to get there for that 40,000. You know, to put it in perspective, I have 3,000 donors as governor of Arkansas in a small state. I've got to go to 40,000. You have 500 new donors every day. That doesn't get you there. You have to have more. That's why ASA2024.com is important. Help us out if you want us on the debate stage. You spoke at the Turning Point Action Conference on Sunday. Other candidates who spoke were Miami Mayor Francis Suarez and, and Donald Trump. But, but it, it seemed like anybody not named Donald Trump had a hard time breaking through with that crowd. Why do you think that's the case? Well, you had uh, some adults in the room that were a little bit loud. But you looked at all of the college kids. They were listening. And that's who the audience was that I was speaking to, thousands of them. And it's actually inspiring to see them engage. You want to encourage that engagement. I said we have to be respectful of other people's ideas. But I'll go to any audience 
that allows me to make my case and defend my ideas. And if I'm right that Trump is not going to be our nominee, then this audience becomes even more critical to make your case to. And so I'll go there. I'm proud to go there. And uh, you got to take a little uh, booing every once in a while if you're running for president, and we can handle that. Right. Welcome to the NFL. You also made an appearance this week at the Family Leadership Summit uh, where you defended your veto. Uh, there's uh, Tucker Carlson asked you about your veto of a 2021 bill in Arkansas that would have banned transgender uh, health procedures for minors. Uh, you've said that you don't believe minors should have transgender surgery, but you thought the legislation went too far by interfering with parental choice. Um, it's a, something of a nuanced take in this day and age of politics where you're saying, I don't agree with this, but parents have the rights, uh, not me. Um, is there a place for that take in today's GOP? Well, we'll see, but uh, I hope what people see is that I'm an independent thinker. I evaluated this, and there's a gray area that you got to draw a line. I thought this went too far. The courts have held it unconstitutional, and that parents have the key uh, responsibility here. Obviously, you know, you got to draw the line even with parents, but when you're talking about medical care, whether you're talking about vaccines that the children take, or whether you're talking about the most sensitive issues that they face, uh, you know, in gender, uh, then the parents have a big role to play. So I sided with parents. I sided with the Constitution. The courts upheld that. But there's areas of disagreement here. I explained my position. We talked about a lot of other things there, including uh, the Mexico and how you go after the cartels and how we address the fentanyl crisis. Uh, but, you know, the controversy one gets the, gets the most attention. Uh, yeah, Bill, guilty as charged. Um, Ten days ago, you slammed President Biden for bragging on the eco economy. You tweeted your own definition of Bidenomics. Quote, an ex economics policy of high interest rates, excessive government spending, inflation, and slow growth, uh, unquote. There was some good uh, economic news uh, last week showing inflation cooling and U.S. workers' wages finally outpacing inflation for the first time in 26 months. Uh, consumers also uh, more optimistic. Do you think Biden deserves any credit for that? Well, uh, whenever you're coming out of a pandemic and you have crushing job loss and you grow the economy, sure, you can take credit for it if you want. We were still not where we should be. He was in South Carolina the same time I was in South Carolina. He was bragging on Bidenomics. He owns it. And I think it's going to be the key issue next year. And, and families are still hurting. The, even though inflation is down, the, it is still costing more than it used to for eggs and for groceries of every kind. Uh, you've got uh, the challenge of now interest rates, uh, which, you know, whether it's a credit card bill or whether you're taking out a car loan, the interest rates are higher. And so all of these things make it difficult for the families. And so we want the economy to get stronger, but I think Biden's on the wrong side of that issue. All right. Asa Hutchinson, former governor of Arkansas, thank you so much. Good to see you, sir. Tomorrow here on The Lead, I'll be talking to another 2024 presidential candidate. I'll be sitting down for an exclusive with uh, Florida governor, Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis. We'll be in South Carolina. You can see that interview tomorrow at 4 p.m. Eastern right here on The Lead. Coming up, the deadly blast targeting the longest bridge in Europe and a key access point for the Russians. That's next. Then there's a hearing in the Trump classified documents case, and the judge says she will discuss one of the most important aspects of the case. Stick around. In our world lead, a key bridge linking Crimea to Russia was hit in a drone strike by Ukraine earlier this morning. Russia says 
Two people were killed while driving their car over the bridge. CNN's Fred Pleitkin takes a look now at why this bridge is so important to Putin. Russian investigators at the scene of the blast on the Crimean bridge that killed the couple driving this car and wounded their daughter, also causing part of the roadway to collapse. Russian President Vladimir Putin irate, vowing revenge. There will be a response from Russia to the terrorist attack on the Crimean bridge. The Ministry of Defense is preparing relevant proposals. A source in Ukrainian intelligence acknowledges Kiev was behind the attack. The Crimean Bridge connects Russia to occupied Crimea. Ukraine says cutting the roadway could hamper the logistics for Moscow's war effort in Ukraine. Analysis of the operational situation and the traditions of warfare allow us to cut off the enemy's logistics routes, the spokesman for the SBU says. The Crimean Bridge is currently one of the transportation corridors for military supplies for the Russian army. It's not the first time the bridge has been hit. In October 2022, a fuel tanker exploded, severely damaging both the road and railway and causing a massive fire. A Ukrainian official only recently explicitly indicating Kiev's involvement. Russia now also announcing it is canceling a grain deal that had allowed for the safe transport of agricultural goods out of Ukrainian ports. The move could cause havoc on international grain markets, prices already surging. While the Kremlin says ending the deal is not related to the bridge attack, the EU and U.S. blasted the move, accusing Moscow of weaponizing world hunger. This is a reckless decision that will have profound human consequences. And it's just another example of Russian callousness and disregard for human lives. The Ukrainians say they want to salvage the grain deal, but will also continue fighting hard to take all of their territory back, including Crimea, as Ukraine's president recently told our own Aaron Burnett. We cannot imagine Ukraine without Crimea. And while Crimea is under the Russian occupation, it means only one thing. War is not over yet. And Jake, the destruction of the bridge could become a big long-term problem for Vladimir Putin as well. In that meeting with Putin, the deputy prime minister of Russia said he doesn't expect that bridge to be fully operational again until November 1st. Of course, all this as the Russians need all the supplies they can get. Ukrainians pressing that counteroffensive in the south. Jake. All right, Fred Pleitkin, thank you so much. We're just hours away from a new hearing in the Trump classified documents case. And this hearing will give us our first real glimpse into how this Trump-appointed judge, Judge Cannon, will handle the case. We're going to go to Florida next. In our law and justice lead now, Judge Eileen Cannon is putting the special counsel's team and Trump attorneys on notice tonight, telling both sides to come to court tomorrow, prepared to discuss a date for Trump's trial into his alleged mishandling of classified documents. This comes after the Justice Department has asked for the trial to begin in December. Trump's team has pushed to delay the trial until after the 2024 election. CNN's Paula Reed joins us now from Fort Pierce, Florida. Paula, walk us through this rather important court hearing scheduled for tomorrow. Yeah, Jake, it is a really important hearing because this is the first time that both sides of this case will appear before Trump-appointed Judge Eileen Cannon. She's going to oversee this case, and the decisions that she makes, both big and small, will have an enormous 
impact on the outcome of this case. Now, tomorrow's hearing is supposed to be focused on how classified materials will be handled during this trial. But the judge has also said that she wants both sides to come prepared to talk about a trial date, as that has been a hot topic in this case. There is a tentative date for next month, but that's not realistically when this is going to go to trial. Jake, the special counsel, has said that it would be ready to take this case to trial in December. But defense attorneys for former President Trump have said it's premature to even set a date. They would like to delay this until after the 2024 election. So all eyes tomorrow will be on Judge Cannon and any indication she gives about which way she's leaning on the timing for this case. The other big question is, of course, will former President Trump be in attendance? He is not expected to be there, and it's unclear if his co-defendant, Walt Nada, will attend. And Paula, prosecutors are, are asking for a protective order over the classified information yeah. in this case. What would that do, a protective order like that? So ahead of any trial, prosecutors need to share the evidence that they've collected with the accused as part of a process called discovery. And in this case, of course, you have some materials that are classified. And prosecutors want the judge to agree on a set of rules for how those classified materials will be handled and the extent to which they can be shared with the defendants. Now, defense attorneys, they say, have raised some objections, but it's not clear exactly what their objections are. But, Jake, the longer it takes the two sides to agree on this process, the more likely it is that this will have the impact of delaying a trial. And, of course, that is really a win for defense attorneys. So, once again, all eyes on Judge Cannon tomorrow and how she deals with all of these issues. All right, Paula Reed, thank you so much. With us now to discuss senior legal analyst for CNN's Ellie Honig. Ellie, as you just heard Paula mention, Judge Cannon wants to discuss a trial date in tomorrow's hearing. What is the likelihood, do you think, that Judge Cannon will actually set a date in tomorrow's hearing? And if so, would it, would it be set in stone? Well, Jake, I think given this new reporting, it is now probable that Judge Cannon will set a trial date anytime between December when DOJ is asking for it or sometime thereafter when Trump's team has asked. Important to note, though, if we get a concrete trial date, write that one down in your calendar in pencil, not in magic marker, because federal trial dates get set and then move back all the time for any number of reasons. The other possibility is the judge may set some intermediate dates for discovery and motions and then say, we'll come back in a couple months. I'll give you my ruling on motions and then we'll set a trial date then. Those are the two options for tomorrow. What does the precedent from other recent federal cases involving classified documents tell us about what would be perceived as a reasonable timeline between the time charges are brought and the start of a trial. So recent precedent actually favors Donald Trump here, Jake. DOJ indicted this case in June. They're asking for a trial date in December. That's six months. In his brief filed last week, Trump cited two recent federal classified documents cases, one of which took about a year and a half to get to trial. The other took three years. Now, DOJ had a chance to respond. They cited two other cases, which took about nine to 12 months each. So essentially, DOJ is now saying to the judge, we want Donald Trump to be given less time to prepare his defense than any other recent federal classified documents case. Prosecutors are asking Judge Cannon to approve a protective order over the classified information shared in the case. Is that standard? And do you think the Judge Cannon will approve it? It's standard and it's actually mandatory by law. The parties and the judge have to work together to come up with some way that those classified materials are going to be shared with the defense lawyer, the defendants, eventually the jury, and eventually the public. I think it's clear that Judge Cannon and DOJ want to get those rules in place quickly. And I think Trump probably sees this as another chance to drag his feet. 
Uh, interesting move today by the legal team for Jack Tashira. Uh, for those who don't remember, he's the Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of posting a trove of classified documents on the social media uh, sharing site uh, Discord. Tashira asked a judge to be released from jail where he awaits trial. He says that he faces the same counts as former President Trump and prosecutors allowed Trump to be released. Um, Look, it's obviously not the same situation, but what do you make of his legal argument? Well, it is an interesting argument, Jake. What Teixeira is saying is I'm a first-time offender. Donald Trump is a first-time offender. I'm locked up waiting for trial. Not only is Donald Trump released, he's not even released on bail conditions. He's just released on his own good word. He's arguing that's unfair. DOJ is going to come back and say there's two reasons you can lock someone up pending trial. One is flight risk, and they argued that Teixeira, given his conduct, was a flight risk. And the second is danger to the community. And I think DOJ is going to say when you look at the specifics of what Teixeira did, the way he disseminated sensitive documents, to many, many people online. I think DOJ is going to argue that's a different scenario. Yeah, quite different cases. Ellie Honig, thanks so much. Appreciate it. A major update on one state six-week abortion ban. A judge just issued a temporary ruling. That's next. And then what police say they found in the basement of the suspected Long Island serial killer's home. As the district attorney says, there is a flood of new information coming in. Stay with us. We have some breaking news for you now. A major development involving Iowa's new abortion that, uh, legislation that just became law just last Friday. An Iowa judge is now temporarily blocking the new law that bans most abortions in the state after six weeks. The legislation came after Republican Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds called for a special legislative session last week with the sole purpose of passing the law. The judge's ruling means abortion will now remain legal in Iowa up to 22 weeks, at least 14 states have passed more restrictive abortion laws in the wake of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade last year. In our Law and Justice lead, today police are sifting through a deluge of new evidence in the case of the suspected serial killer who lived among New Yorkers for a decade, including a hidden vault in Rex Hewerman's basement filled with hundreds of guns. Hewerman's Thursday arrest was the first in a cold case that confounded police for years, known as the Gilgo Beach murders. Court documents show that Hewerman lured, assaulted, and murdered at least three women, then buried their bodies in burlap sacks along the Long Island shore. CNN's Bryn Gingras is in Massapequa Park. Uh, Bryn, police say they're also looking for items from the murders Hewerman might have kept. What, what kind of items might he have kept? Anything, Jake, anything that they connect can connect Hurman to his alleged victims. That could be something that he took off them, possibly. They're looking not only in this home behind me, but also at a nearby storage facility. And, Jake, we have been here all day today. And I can tell you, this home where Hurman lived with his wife and uh, daughter, it's going to look a lot different than it did last week. We have been seeing just items taken out and put into evidence, office furniture, a Playboy magazine, guns, as you mentioned, an arsenal, according to authorities, of guns was found in the basement of that home. So there's just a lot of evidence that authorities are going to be sifting through. When you talk about those trophies, sources are telling us that's going to be a process, right? If they find anything, not only do they have to run the forensics on possible quote-unquote trophies that he might have kept, but they also need to show those right to the victim's families to see if anything has significance. So this is a very much a long investigation that is continuing uh, at this hour will be continuing for quite some time. We're also learning, Jake, 
that his wife and daughter, again, who he lived in this home, well, they're helping, they're cooperating with this investigation. Jake. All right, Bryn Gingrass, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller. Uh, John, a Suffolk County Deputy Police Commissioner Anthony Carter says it's, quote, the worst case I've ever seen. He repeatedly described Hewerman as a, quote, demon. But this investigation is far from over, you say. You know, it may just be beginning because, as you see, charges being brought um, in three of the murders. Um, Charges may be coming in a fourth. There are a number of roads that they're going to have to travel down here, which is number one. Can they connect with the physical evidence and forensics that they get out of that house, that they get out of that storage area, that they get out of other locations that they may search um, this suspect to other bodies among the almost 10 that um, could fit into this pattern? Uh, The second thing is, does a alleged serial killer uh, stop killing when police find, you know, his burial ground or does he keep going with a change of M.O.? Um, Here's a guy who has a a timeshare in Las Vegas, access to hunting cabins upstate, um, uh, relatives that he visits down south. So what they're going to be looking at is what is what is his pattern of life? Where has he been and have people disappeared or vanished in those places? It's going to widen. A source tells you that Huerman asked about the news coverage of his arrest. When he was taken into custody, he was brought to the county jail. And there's an intake process that prisoners go through um, where they get their prison uniform and they're told the rules and where they're going to stay. And um, his question uh, was, is it in the news? (laughs) And the answer was, yeah, it's in the news. So you just were referring to the Gilgo Four, the the victims. Um, It's just four of the 11 sets of human remains found along that Long Island beach. Given the evidence, what do you think the chances are that someone not connected to Huerman was responsible for the other seven killings? You know, it's a really interesting question, Jake, because, you know, on the face of it, um, it would be highly unusual for someone to select a desolate uh, burial place for four victims and have other people select the same place and, you know, bury or conceal other bodies there. Um, it's not usually a group dynamic uh, between um, people who hide bodies. So there's that. But then there's also, frankly, in a highly suburban, densely populated area, um, it's one of the few desolate areas where from the road you have a really good line of sight of anybody coming up on you in a car from either direction. So um, it's possible they're not connected, but they're going to have to go through the motions to make sure that they can eliminate all of them from this case as much as connect them. So Huerman pleaded not guilty on Friday, but it's just a fact that eventually many serial killers do confess to their crimes. Um, Depending on how this case unfolds, do you think Huerman fits the profile of someone who might eventually confess? I mean, the, the evidence, if it is as presented, seems rather overwhelming. So it's uh, based on the affidavit. It's a very strong case with connections in DNA and um, telephone records and an eyewitness and so on. Um, But the first thing he did was not make statements to police. The second thing he did was to invoke his right to have an attorney, um, which is his right. Uh, So he... um, He is not one of those suspects who shrugs his shoulders and says, well, you got me. Let me tell you the whole story. 
if he opens up, if he is found guilty, if he admits that he's behind these, these crimes, um, that's much more likely to be at the back end of a process where he's going to try to get out of this by uh, having his lawyer mount the best defense and point at other suspects, which we already got a hint of today from the attorney. Well, what, what will his uh, defense be, do you think? Uh, you talked about what the attorney suggested, that there, he'll point to other people that were maybe sought. I mean, he'll say, yes, my client's DNA was on this victim, but that's because she was uh, a sex worker and he availed himself of that, but not because he killed her. What, what possible defenses could there be? Oh, well, Jake, you know the, you know the, the trial uh, dynamic. Uh, they'll bring in a another DNA expert who will say uh, that uh, the testing was flawed or the chances are much less than described. Um, they'll attack the evidence. And because this is a case that's gone on for a decade, they're going to be able in discovery to really have access to all of the suspects they've looked at before. And some of these suspects looked really good and were eliminated simply by the investigative process. When they went to eliminate this suspect, who had no criminal record, who hadn't been on their radar before, really March of 2022, they kept taking every step to eliminate him. And instead of eliminating him, they actually brought him closer. So uh, the defense will, will take advantage of whatever information points in a different direction. All right, John Miller, thanks once again for your expertise. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. More than 500 of the 900 Canadian wildfires are burning out of control as it's getting harder to breathe in parts of the United States. When will there be some relief? Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series today, smoke from hundreds of Canadian wildfires continues to blanket the skies from Chicago to New York, leading to new air quality alerts. About 900 wildfires rage across Canada. But what's driving them? CNN's Paula Newton is in Quebec with the latest on efforts to contain the blazes. They've come all the way from America's southwest. Welcome to Quebec. Now here in northern Quebec's scorched lands. Joining hundreds of other American and international firefighters. Doing what they can to slow wildfires that just won't quit. At this point, we're just trying to secure the edge and make sure that the communities are safe. The Silver State Hotshot Crew is looking for hotspots. They are firefighting crews specially trained and skilled, now taking on Canada's record-breaking wildfires. I know you're from Montana, big sky country, but this was a big fire. This yeah. is a big territory. In the scope for us uh, in the States, this would be one of the largest fires ever to occur in, in the United States. So, yeah, it's a gigafire. The total area burned in Canada already has shattered records. Now 10 million hectares, that's almost 25 million acres, an area nearly as large as the state of Ohio and still burning. And when they burn like this, there's no way to even put people in front of it to even stop the fire. There's no amount of resources on the ground or from the sky that's gonna be able to stop one of these fires when they, when they get the momentum. As shocking and frankly unsettling as it is, this fire is just far too large to extinguish. In fact, the area already burned is larger than most countries on the planet. It means that not only does the fire burn, but there is going to be a lot of smoke. And that means many American cities could be shrouded in smoke on any given day for weeks or months to come. 
don't be surprised if, if it continues. And secondly, this is, this is a problem that is gonna go on into the future. When it's the year to burn and the conditions are right, it's just gonna continue to burn. Here in Quebec, many were evacuated within minutes as the flames threatened towns and fires burned with raging speed. American. Jimmy Seaburn is grateful to see American help. He says he had minutes to leave in June and was upset to leave behind the family pets. They were fine when he returned six days later, but he fears his home will be threatened again. C'est incroyable, mais c'est pas normal. Oui, it's incredible, but it's not normal. No, don't know, no, 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 He says it's not normal, but cautions we should all learn to expect the worst from the weather now. The rain helps. It has finally arrived in some places, but in the words of one Canadian official, it's like a drop in an otherwise empty bucket. The mayor of this town, Shabogamo, says the rain is an answered prayer. She may not have to evacuate her town again. But they have to adapt, she says. No one imagined so much would burn so quickly. Were you scared? Uh, strangely, I wasn't scared. I was mad. And then I have to come down and say, Manon, you have a job to do. And that's why, you know, I say, so stay calm. And I said to my people, let's be patient. Let's do it and keep it zen. It may be difficult to stay calm as Mother Nature rages. The cliche applies here in every way possible. Canada is burning, and it's not out of the woods yet. Jake, I know what you're thinking. It's raining, right? That should help. As I explained, though, no, not really. There are fires burning in this country from west to east. That means the smoke will continue to shroud those American cities from any direction, really. This is going to last quite a while, and Canadian Armed Forces are now deployed to the west to help with those fires that are now out of control. As officials repeated to me so many times, Jake, this is more than one country can handle. Paula Newton in uh, northern Quebec, thank you so much. Still ahead on the lead, Ford is knocking thousands of dollars off one of its most popular vehicles. What's prompting that pricing scale back? We'll bring you the details, but first... Here's CNN's Wolf Blitzer with what is next in the Situation Room. Wolf? Jake, we're going to discuss provocative new moves on both sides of the war in Ukraine with the top National Security Council spokesman John Kirby. I'll ask him about Ukraine's new attack on that bridge linking Crimea and Russia, as well as Vladimir Putin's decision to pull out of a critically important grain deal with Ukraine. And I'll try to pin down Kirby on when the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu may actually visit the United States after President Biden invited him there today. All of that, much more coming up right at the top of the hour here in the Situation Room. In our money lead, Ford is slashing prices on their electric pickup truck, the F-150 Lightning. Ford debuted the Lightning in 2021, retailing between close to $60,000 for the baseline model and $100,000 for the premium. The price update brings down the cost by nearly $10,000, with the basic now going for just under fifty dollars Ford says the price drop is due to increased plant capacity, scaling up production, and lower battery costs. Last month, the company received $9.2 billion of loans from the Department of Energy to build up their EV battery factories. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Blue Sky, if you have an invite, the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. I'm also on Threads. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead whence you get your podcasts all two hours, just sitting there 
like a delicious cheese sandwich in Columbia, South Carolina. Tomorrow on The Lead, don't miss my exclusive sit-down with Republican presidential candidate Florida Governor Ron DeSantis from the campaign trail in South Carolina. That's only on The Lead at 4 p.m. Eastern. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.